So we are beginning a brand new series today um, called Blank Slate. Jessica Breslin, our executive pastor, continues to insist that I should call it Blank Spaces, which is apparently a Taylor Swift song, um, which she swears the lyrics fit my series until they don't. So I'm not sure what that means, but if any of you know Blank Spaces, you can explain it to me afterwards um, or not. Um, So, but the idea behind this series is this. What if you began your faith like from ground zero? What if you wiped the slate clean and everything that you'd ever been taught about faith, you kind of washed away and you started at the beginning? See, because the truth is everything in life has a beginning. You have a beginning. You, You have a beginning. Some of you, your beginning was planned. For others of you, your beginning happened through the the miracle of modern medicine. Others of you, your beginning, it was an accident, but you had a beginning, right? Others, others of us, or the other thing that has beginnings in life is is romance, right? You have these stories of a relationship. Back in the olden days, you used to look across the room. So when I met Charla, like I met her at a party and I looked across the room and our eyes connected. Now, the beginning of relationships start with swiping right and you, you find people that way. I hear, I don't know. Um... But our faith also has a beginning. And so for some of you, the beginning of your faith was in Sunday school. Others of you, if you didn't grow up as a Christian, maybe the beginning of your faith was at a mosque or at a synagogue. Some of you, the beginning of your faith journey was grandma or grandpa. Maybe your parents didn't go to church, um, but grandma and grandpa tried to instill values, uh, Christian values in you or religious values in you when you go to their house. Others of you, your faith journey began with your parents. They wanted you from the earliest age to follow the way of Jesus, and so they would have you pray every evening and they would read stories to you from the Bible. But somewhere back in childhood, at least for most of us, somewhere along the way, you began to formulate and put together your faith framework. Now, you didn't know that's what you were doing, but as time went on, as your journey proceeded, you were putting together some sort of framework of faith. And your framework, for most of us, it looked something like this. Even if you didn't grow up in a Christian in the Christian faith, your framework for faith looks something like this. God is good and loving. God is good and loving. God punishes evil and rewards good. Now, this can be a double-edged sword. So I I remember learning that that good people were rewarded and bad people were punished. And, And I don't remember anyone telling me this as much as I remember a song that I sang in Sunday school. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Did anyone else sing that song? It went like this. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. It's really sweet. And then, then the ominous part happens. And it wasn't meant to be ominous, but it was ominous. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little hands, what you do. (laughs) Scared to death to this day because the Father is looking down in love, right? Just even the cadence of it. It's like, okay. Anyway. Um... God punishes evil and rewards good. And then the third thing was that God answers prayer. But then something happens as you get older. The frameworks that you were handed as a child or as a young adult, those frameworks are not holding up under the rigors of life, are not holding up under the realities of adulthood. Our childhood faith is no longer supporting us. Because we begin to ask questions like this. If God is good and God is loving, then why is there so much suffering in the world? Why do we keep reading about 
people dying today across the, the world from malnutrition? Why are children dying from malnutrition? Why are people dying for lack of access to clean drinking water? Why is there so much war and strife and division? If God is good and loving, does he not know that this is going on? Why doesn't he do something about it? If God punishes evil and rewards good, why is my life not going better? Because for some of you, you've always done everything you were supposed to do. You always did the right thing. And your life is not going very well. On the other hand, you have friends who are just simply evil people. I mean, they're just the worst people in the world. You can admit it. And, and their life is going really well. Everything they do turns out well. So if God rewards good and punishes evil, then why are good people not flourishing? And then the other thing we learned was that God answered prayer. And then your friend or your family member, maybe your grandparent or your parent, your mom or your dad or your best friend gets ill or something really tragic happens and you pray, you pray with all you have in you and you believe that God is going to do something, that God is going to work a miracle and then they die and nothing gets better. And so as time begins to go on, your faith begins to crumble because the things that you had built your foundation on, they don't seem to be holding up. And life begins to chip away at your faith. Karen Armstrong, who is a former nun, um, but who is one of the foremost experts on religion, um, not just Christianity, but just religion in general. If you've not read a book by Karen Armstrong, I'd highly recommend it. But Karen Armstrong says this, Many of us have, left, have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God. We learned about God at about the same time we learned about Santa Claus. But while our understanding of the Santa Claus phenomenon evolved and matured, our theology remained somewhat infantile. Not surprisingly, when we attained intellectual maturity, many of us rejected the God we had inherited and denied that he existed. Now, my guess is, if you are here this evening, you probably have not completely given up on God. But for many of us, the challenge is not that we have given up on God or we have denied that God exists, but instead, our faith is simply irrelevant to our life. And, and it wasn't like we'd made a decision one day that we no longer wanted faith to be relevant, but we just woke up one day and we realized that we had grown so far and moved so far from the faith of our childhood that we had no idea how to get back on track. And so some of you come Sunday after Sunday and you sing the songs and you go to community group and you pray and you read the Bible and the Bible study, but you are just going through the motions because it is dead to you and you have no idea how to recover what you once had. And so the, what I hope to do over the next eight weeks is just to ask this question, what if you began again? What if you acted as if you'd never been to Sunday school, you'd never gone to church, no one had ever told you the Christian story, and you, the slate was wiped clean, and you had a chance to rebuild your faith from the ground up? What would that look like? And so I want, what I want to do over these next eight weeks is I want to begin to give us some, some, a framework to ask that question. And part of the problem is, is that when we were growing up, or when our faith was being formulated, at least if you grew up in the Christian tradition, but even other traditions to some extent, they have different books, but 
but when we ask questions about what we should believe or how we should live, somebody always responded, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, how should I live? Well, the Bible says, how should I spend my money? Well, the Bible says, and we heard things like the Bible is inerrant and infallible. We don't even know what those words mean, but we were told that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. It was without error. We were told things like the Bible is a book. Turns out the Bible isn't a book. It is a collection of letters and writings that were collected over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. We were told that everything in the Bible was of equal value. It's not. That's just ridiculous. Everything in the Bible is not of equal value. And we never understood where the Bible came from in the first place. We never understood why these texts were authoritative. And in fact, when we tried to ask questions about like, okay, I get that it's in the Bible, but why does that make it true? We, someone responded, because, right? That's just the way things are. This week, um, actually it was a couple weeks ago, and I think I told, told you all this, but I, I thought about this while I was preparing today for today, um, it, Eloise has started asking a lot of why questions. Why? And so the other day it was raining and she's like, why is it raining? And I'm like, I don't know, because of condensation and clouds. And I like did my best to remember why it rains. <laughs> it was a very incomplete answer. <laughs> to which she replied, why? And it is at that moment I understood if, how people, if, if, they, if, if, we believe, if people believe that God was a myth, how they came up with the idea of God. Because in that moment, I just want to say, because God makes it rain, Eloise, now be quiet, right? <laughs> but that's kind of how people treat us when we would ask questions. Well, why should we live this way? Or why should we believe the Bible? Well, because it's in the Bible. Well, why should we trust the Bible? Just because we do. But then you went away to college. Or maybe it was in high school and someone taught you about carbon dating. Or you heard about the Big Bang. And you begin to realize maybe the earth was older than 6,000 years. And then you begin to try to go home and talk to your family about what you were learning and, and, and they wanted to hear none of it. And you discovered that maybe, maybe the, this book was sacred but it wasn't scientific. Maybe this book was sacred, but there's a lot of historical errors. And we've been told that everything in it was completely accurate and true. And now we're discovering that maybe everything isn't as it seems. And as you experience life, as you experience the difficulties of life, a bigger and bigger and bigger gap began to emerge between what you had been taught and what you believed. And then one day you woke up and realized you had no idea what you believed anymore and that you were just going through the motions just because. And so over the next few weeks, what I want to say is that the Bible says is not an adequate starting point for our faith. The Bible says is not an adequate starting point for our faith. But the good news is that the Bible says was never intended to be the starting point of our faith. The Bible says was never meant to be the beginning of our faith. And the way we know that is, is because for the first 350 years of the church, there was no Bible. 
When Christianity exploded and spread across the known world and became the dominant religion, like within the first 300 years before Constantine, Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire because there was something so inspiring and something so infectious about the Jesus message that it was irresistible. And there was no Bible for the first 300 years. We forget this. Like the Bible is just simply a collection of letters and writings that eventually people decided, you know what? We should put these together in a book so that we can distribute them. But for the first 350 years of the the church, there was no Bible. All there were were stories that were being passed from one person to another that began with the disciples who said, you're never gonna believe it. But there was this man And we hung out with him and we walked with him and he told us things that were so inspiring and so inspirational. He told us that there was a better way to live, that the way we live now is not the way we have to live in the future, that there is a new kingdom, a kingdom where there is justice and righteousness and where the last will be first and people on the margins, they don't have to stay there, but they are welcomed into the mainstream and everyone is invited to the table, even the people who'd been excluded before. And then they told the story. They said, but that man, he was killed. We walked with him and we watched him be crucified on a tree. And then the next day, or a few days later, we had breakfast with him on the seashore. He changed our lives. And they began to tell the story to everyone who would listen, to everyone that they would come into contact with. And, and, and they said, you know what? We are not afraid of anything. Death has no power over us. And they begin to go into all the world and begin to care for everyone they came into contact with with no concern for their own life because they said, we serve a Savior who is risen and that same God is with us today. That is how the early church spread. And the starting point of their faith was not the Bible. And I want us this evening to look at where they began their faith where their journey began, because I think in the, where they discovered the beginning of their faith, I think we can begin to find a, a space to rebuild our own. So we're going to um, look this evening at a passage from Acts chapter 17. Now, those of you who are really quick and smart are going to be like, you just got done going on for five minutes about how the Bible cannot be the foundation of our faith, and now we're going to read from the Bible. You're right, but here's what I want to say. Give me, a, hold on, let me explain. Um, Acts was written by this guy named Luke. Luke's the same guy who wrote the gospel, Luke. In fact, it wasn't two books. It was just one book. We split it apart later. But Acts was a, or I mean, but Luke was a, was a doctor, but he was also a historian. And Luke knew the people who had walked with Jesus. Luke knew the people who had been friends with Jesus. And particularly the, the book of Acts is a travel journey, a journal of his time with the apostle Paul. So Luke traveled with Paul. He knew Paul personally, and he was in the room when Paul was talking to Peter, James, and John. And the other thing you need to know about Luke is that he is a very meticulous historian. So anytime we can cross-reference something from the Gospel of Luke or from Acts with outside resources, with outside books or uh, geopolitical information, like something going on in the world at the time, anytime we cross-reference something in Luke with an outside source... He is spot on. You need to know this. There are other parts of the Bible, like when you cross-reference it with against a historical record, they're not, it's not completely inaccurate, 
but they kind of got the details wrong. It was, it, it's, it's not like they were meaning to be dishonest. It's just what would happen if I wrote down a historical account. I, mean, I hate details, and I'd be like, you know, the beginning of our country happened like 1800-ish, right? You're like, <laughs> the details don't matter. That's how some of the Gospels are, but, but, Mark, but, but, but Luke is meticulous in his details. And so what I want to do is I want to write, or want to look at this passage where he recounts a, a, a speech or an encounter that, that, that the Apostle Paul has when he's in Athens. Now Paul, um, it was the chief rabbi. Paul is an intellectual. Paul had gone to all the best universities and he was well respected in all sorts of different circles as being an intellectual giant. Most of Paul's writings that we know, the famous writings, things like, um, the, Epist- or, uh, things like the Book of Romans, are written about somewhere around 50 AD. Uh, so they predate any of the Gospels. Most of the Gospels aren't written until about 70 AD. So they don't begin to write down um, kind of those accounts until somewhere around 70 AD. But Paul, most of Paul's writings are written somewhere around 50 AD. So just a little over 45 to 50 years after Jesus dies. And so Paul is hanging out with and knows the people who knew Jesus. And then Paul had his own encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, which completely changed the trajectory of his life. And so he goes to Athens, he's hanging out in Athens, and, and he's wandering around the city, and he has this, a number of thoughts. Let's just read the story. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he's wandering around Athens, he's got some time to kill, and he realizes that on every corner there is a temple to some new god. Uh, we went, last year we went to Rome, and as we were wandering around Rome, it, it seemed like there was a temple to some random god on every single street corner. I've never seen so many temples in all my life to gods that I had no idea ever existed. Athens was similar. So Paul's wandering around Athens, and he's like, wow, they have a lot of gods and a lot of temples. And so he reasoned in the synagogues, both with Jews and God-fearing Greeks. God-fearing Greeks would be um, Jews who had, or I mean, would be Greeks who had converted to Judaism. As well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Now, Athens is the seat of the intellectual powerhouses of Paul's day. In fact, much of what we know of as philosophy and, and, and a lot of other intellectual endeavors kind of come from, begin in Athens. And so he runs into these Epicurean Stoic philosophers. And the Stoic philosophers, they believe that everything in life can be explained through reason and through rationality, right? You can, you can read... You ha- there has to be a reason behind everything. You have to be able to make a good case. They loved logic. Now, the Epicureans, on the other hand, they were just like, uh, we, we really don't care. Just eat, drink, and be merry. You can't figure everything out anyway, so quit stressing yourself out. Now, to be fair, I have, I have sympathy for the Epicureans. I'm just like, it doesn't matter. Like, seriously. But anyway, so he, he's in a conversation with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, and some of them asked... What is this babbler trying to say? What is this babbler trying to say? Which I love because when you read Paul's writings, you just get the sense that this guy is super uptight. He talks a million miles a minute and he just doesn't take a breath. He's the most intense person you've ever come into contact with in your life. So Paul is just 
on it. Let me tell you about this guy named Jesus. He rose from the dead. And like, no, no, seriously, slow down. What is he talking about? Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they brought him, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Aragopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new thing, what this new teaching is that you are presenting? In other words, they're like, hey, Paul, slow down, pretend like we're three-year-olds, and explain to us what in the world you're talking about. And so they take Paul to the, this hill um, known as Aragopagus. I always mispronounce it, Aragopagus. Aragopagus, am I getting it right? As someone came up to me this morning, he's like, you butchered that every single time. Thank you, I love you too. Anyway, so it's this hill where all these great philosophical debates took place. Incredible debates throughout the history of, of Greece took place in this hill. And so they take Paul to the seat of, of, of intellectual debate. And all these brilliant philosophers gather around him. And they say, look, tell us about this thing. Explain what it is that you are talking about. Because you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we would like to know what they mean. And then Paul stood in the meeting of the Aragopas and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. He's like, I had like an hour to kill this afternoon, and I've never seen so many temples in all my life. You people like your religion. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. They were just covering their bases just in case they had left a God out somewhere along the way. They didn't want to make this God upset with them. So they just like, let's cover our bases. Let's have a temple for the unknown God. Which at first, like, it seems ridiculous. But if you're honest, that's like why some of you are here this evening. You really don't believe anymore. But just in case grandma is right and there is an eternal hell, you are going to show up and just keep coming just in case. So Paul says to him, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. You have this tomb to this unknown God. You have this altar to this unknown God. You're acknowledging that there is a God out there that you don't even know about. You're ignorant of this thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. Let me tell you, there's this God. And he's not like one among many, but he is the God. And he created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He is the creator of all things. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. One of the things you learn when you study mythology is that the gods are just really needy. They always need something. Rather, instead of being needy, this God, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This God gives us life and he gives us life abundantly. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants something for you. So beautiful. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him. And perhaps reach out for him. 
that they would, as I was reading this, I was thinking, one of the reasons I believe that even God created such an incredible, beautiful universe, besides the fact that God loves beauty, is that those are the moments when we are, on, when we are having a transcendent experience, when you, maybe you're hiking or you're on top of a mountain or you hear a beautiful piece of music and you think, there must be something more to the universe than just the material, that which we can see, feel, and touch. This did not happen by accident. And Paul is saying that is by design. God created this universe in a way that you seek him out, that you say there must be something more. I want to know about this God. God did that so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. This God that you seek, the God of the unknown God, he wants to be in relationship with you. He is there seeking you. He is not far from you. And then here's what Paul does next. He quotes Greek philosophers. He does not quote the Bible. He doesn't even have the Bible. But he quotes Greek philosophers or rather Greek poets. He uses their own writings against them. He said, and this is, this is one of the Greek poets. He said, for in him we live and move and have our being." As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So it's like, so your own poets say that you are God's offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, that's not my words, those are your words. Since you are God's offsprings, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. All these things that you surround yourself with. An image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And then he makes this ridiculous over-the-top claim. He said, he has given proof. He's given proof. And now the philosophers in the room, particularly the Stoics, they're getting really uncomfortable. You don't have proof for God's. For he is given proof by raising him from the dead. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone, is the foundation of the faith. Because here comes this guy claiming that there is a new and a better way to live. The way that the world is structured is not the way that the world has to be. And then what happens? The powers that be do what they do best. They stamp out anyone who proclaims a new way of living. But Paul says he did not stay dead, for God raised him from the dead, and that, that resurrection was a validation of everything that he had proclaimed before. And then the philosophers responded exactly how you'd expect philosophers to respond. Some of them sneered. But others said, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. There's something, there's something deeper here. We want to hear more. And at that Paul left the council. The beginning of your faith, the beginning of Christian faith, it's not the Bible. It's not just belief. The beginning of your faith is a question. It's the question that Paul leaves this crowd with. And it's not whether Adam and Eve are real 
And it's not whether the earth was created in 6,000 years or whether it was its millions of years or billions of years old. The question isn't even whether the Bible is completely true or infallible or inerrant. Right? There's a million questions we could argue about. In fact, one of, the reasons, one of the things we say here at the table is we, don't, we have conversations instead of policies because there are so many different things that we can get in arguments with and Christians have throughout history. They've gotten in arguments about all kinds of ridiculous things. Churches have split over it. So people come up to me and like, hey, what is your view on superlapsarianism? Which I'm impressed that I said. And... Um, without stumbling, and, uh, and I'm like, I, I don't even know, I don't know, I'll, let me Google it and I'll get back to you. No, like, we don't care. We don't care. The important question, the thing that we want to wrestle with, the foundation for us is this question. It's the same question that Paul leaves them with. It's who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? As you're thinking about restarting your faith and you're thinking about wiping that slate clean and starting at the beginning, that's the question you have to wrestle with. Who is Jesus? Because Jesus claims his proclamation is that he is God incarnate. That in Jesus we see the face of God. And if you want to know what God is like, you need to look at Jesus. And so what we want to do over the next few weeks is we want to explore this question of who is Jesus. And what Paul believes is that Jesus is the creator of the universe. He is a God who cares. He is a God who revealed himself as a man. And God proved and validated what Jesus was saying by raising Jesus from the dead. And Paul believes that he is the savior and the Lord of all. And so the question that you have to wrestle with is this question, who is Jesus? Like, there's a million other things that you could get caught up on, but they are, just, they, they are just distractions. The thing that you have to figure for yourself is this, who is Jesus? So I want to give you just a couple of uh, uh, questions to wrestle with this week. Um, typically, I'd tell you to talk about them in your dinner parties, but since those don't start until the end of this month, um, find a friend, take someone out to coffee this week, maybe journal about this, call a friend back home, um, talk to your housemates. But here are the two questions. First, how and when did your faith journey begin? Or do you even have a faith journey? I mean, some of you, you don't know where it began because you've been in church since before you can even remember. You were born on Saturday and mom and dad brought you to church on Sunday. You don't remember a time you didn't believe or that you weren't in the church. Others of you, you, you don't even know why you're here this evening. You walked by and someone said there was free coffee inside. Others of you know that you've been, your faith has been falling apart or been deconstructed over the past period of months and years. How and when did your faith journey begin? And then the second question I want you to, to think about or to talk about is, how well has your faith held up under the rigors of life? How well has it sustained you? And do you want something new and something better? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the words of Paul. We thank you that, that Luke wrote these words down and that they continue to speak to us today about who you are. 
And I pray that you would just begin to create a, an opening, a softness in, in our hearts, in that space where we have begun to harden ourselves off and wall ourselves off because it just seems that everything that we believe may have been a lie. God, I just pre- pray that over the next few weeks that you just create an openness within us as we explore this question about who you are. As we re-examine and start from, from ground zero and rebuilding our faith. And I pray, God, that you would just reveal yourself to us in a fresh and a new way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.